We continue through the book of 1 Timothy. We're in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 25, talking about elders in this particular portion of Scripture. I found it uh, encouraging that by God's providence, the very text that we are studying now is the text that was so crucial, really, for what went on at General Assembly. Who will we ordain as ministers of the gospel? Who will be an officer in the church? This is the exact question that brought a record number of people to our General Assembly. This is the household of God, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.14, and we should know how to behave. And he is delineating what that should look like. As he talks about elders, we read last week a few things that are important. We're going to reread them for context. But the heavy truth is that elders are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This is the context, I believe, for what we're going to read this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and... The laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are coming to you again as your children, as sheep who are often wandering and helpless, who don't understand the shepherd. We pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our eyes, that our hearts would be softened, that we would not only hear with our ears, but we would hear with our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. This is part two of the series, if you will, on elders. Last week, I was only able to get through two of the four points when we talk about God's under-shepherds. What do I mean by that? Well, in Psalm 23, we read that God is our shepherd, specifically Yahweh. The Creator God, Yahweh, is our shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, we read that elders are to shepherd the flock among you, and that they also have a shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus. So in scriptures, when you hear Jesus talking about shepherds, when you see a psalm devoted to shepherds, 
First of all, you see the good shepherd, but you also see what your elders in the church should be doing as well. Jesus shows us what shepherding should look like. There are four points. First two we've already discussed, provision for elders and protection of elders. Today we're going to discuss correction of elders and selection of elders. All four of these things are found in this text, provision, protection, correction, and selection. Just uh, by way of summary, the points we made last week. Verse 17 says, Elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. And the laborer deserves his wages. This is Paul telling Timothy that elders should be provided for materially and that they should be honored. Those who rule well should be worthy of double honor. Those who preach and teach should be worthy of double honor. Again, this is a matter of the heart. Secondly, Paul says, when he talks of protecting elders, that charges against an elder should not even be admitted, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You remember that? That's the Old Testament law. This is actually part of our legal code as well. Two or three witnesses are required to bring a charge against an elder. Jesus highlights this in Matthew 18. It's relevant for the rest of the sermon, so I'm going to read it again. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is the first step in any conflict and anything that goes on in the church. You go to that person and talk to them in love. You tell them, and if they listen to you, you've gained a brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. How a church accomplishes this varies. Typically in our church, you would report this to the elders, and the elders would go and visit this person. But really, it just says take one or two others so that the charge may be established, that you have more than one person looking at that response. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. In our denomination, that means there actually will be charges and the elders will conduct a trial. This doesn't presume guilt, it presumes innocence. But after that, if he refused to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is excommunication. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, the elders of the church have been given real spiritual authority. By God's providence, their judgments are seen as God's judgments. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You see, Jesus is saying, I mean, this is probably true even in this worship service, but the context, the specific context, is the judgments of the elders against those who have unrepentant hearts and are being judged by the church. 
And Jesus gives them great authority. He says, whatever you decide will be done by my Father in heaven, and I'm right there with you. This is reiterated by Paul in this text that we just read. Sometimes there are elders, and this is specifically talking of elders in 1 Timothy 5. Sometimes there are elders who have sinned in such an outrageous or heinous manner that they must be publicly corrected and removed from office. And that brings us to our third point, the correction of elders. Correction of elders. Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. It is special that, Paul says, for those who persist in sin, he's acknowledging, I think, that all elders sin. But there are some who persist. They disregard their sin. They excuse their sin. And for those who continue to sin, often this is most commonly seen in outrageous sins that would disgrace the church or disgrace Christ's name. If they persist in this sin, and again, most often they're caught in a sin like that, as elders, they must be publicly rebuked. So the Matthew 18 process works it out. You go to them, you confirm it with two or three witnesses, then it goes to the church and they receive a public rebuke. In our denomination, discretion is given to the session. My court would be the presbytery. The presbytery is like the court above the session, which is our local church. The presbytery consists of all of the pastors and ruling elders in all of the churches in a region that's around us. That's our presbytery. That's where trials for pastors happen in our denomination. But they apply these same principles. I think we all have seen through our lives, and we talked about it last week, pastors who fall in disgrace and disgrace the church of Christ. The examples are all too often seen in the the news media, and I'm not going to mention any of them, but it's most often adultery or sexual sin, perversion, some type of greed or embezzlement. They should be publicly rebuked. The purpose is that other elders will see the disgrace and to see the, the public nature of the rebuke and that they would be afraid. That's what the text says. The rest may stand in fear. Not just fearing the rebuke, but also fearing God, seeing that the work that is happening is serious work. There's two kind of parts to this too. An elder who falls into some uh, wicked sin, some adultery or something that would be a highlight for the news or something, that kind of thing. Ecclesiastically, with regard to the church, yes, whether he's repentant or not, he needs to be removed. He needs to be rebuked. Personally, of course, the whole purpose of discipline is what? It's repentance. It's to restore the person to fellowship. But that's not the same as restoring him to his office. Right here, Paul is talking about the office of elder. So someone who's caught in a sin or who confesses a heinous sin, while they're elders, they are going to be publicly rebuked. 
most likely removed. Why is that? 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 tell us why. Because an elder is someone who should be blameless. What does that mean? That I heard it mentioned this way, that it means that you throw a charge against him and it just doesn't stick. There's no stickiness to charges that are thrown at him. Nothing serious about their lives is seen as a disgrace to their office or to the church. This principle that I've just outlined for you lies in direct contradiction to most of what you see happening in most churches, I think, in America. What usually happens is some pastor is caught in some horrible sin. He publicly repents. He stands before the church and says he's sorry. And then within a few months or a year, he's back in service. He's doing his job again. This should cause us all to pause. If words mean anything, an elder's requirement to be blameless should prohibit further service as a minister of the gospel. Why do I say that? They were in a position of great trust. They were in a position of knowing people intimately, shepherding a flock, and yet they became wolves in sheep's clothing by destroying people in their own flock. They brought disgrace to the church of Christ and probably hurt people in the flock. And they are no longer blameless. It's not personal. It's not that we don't like these people. We want to restore them to fellowship. But according to Scripture, I believe they cannot be given another position of trust. They cannot. They are not blameless. And I mentioned that the PCA is grappling with this issue of what is required to be a blameless elder? What is required to be blameless to be ordained as an elder? Are men who claim to be homosexual and yet remain celibate blameless? That was the issue that brought everyone to General Assembly. Can you claim to be a gay Christian who's celibate and be ordained as a minister or even a Christian? Our church came down against that notion. Praise God. As they tried to apply 1 Timothy 5 instruction. And the argument that was received back is the same argument from the world as well. The argument was made on the floor of General Assembly. That's just so unloving. It's so unloving to tell someone who is mortifying his sin, but calls himself gay, that he cannot serve as an officer. By preventing celibate gay men from being officers, we're saying to the world that God does not love gay people. I think that's a direct quote. Our response is a response of the truth of Scripture in love. Certainly we don't hate people who call themselves gay, who are deceived in that way. We want them to be restored, but the way to go about that is to speak the truth to them with as much love as possible. I believe Paul does this in Ephesians 5. If you would turn to Ephesians 5, I want to go through this with you. I believe this is kind of what happened General Assembly, and it is a good example for us. 
as we seek to love those who are in sin. Ephesians 5. And think of this in the context of the argument that was made about who should be ordained, who is blameless. Verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself, himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So be imitators of God and walk in love. This is Paul's this is the push Paul is making here. Be imitators of God and walk in love. Well, how do you do that? Well, he tells you in the following verses, and it might surprise you. How do you walk in love? Verse 3, sexual immorality, all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There can be no gay Christian. You're naming a sin among us. Sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You see how Paul showed love to people who were stuck in those sins? He proclaimed the truth. And he told them that judgment was awaiting them. That was the most loving thing he could do. He, he issued a warning, didn't he? And then he also issues a warning to beware. A warning to the church to beware of the world's arguments. This played out at General Assembly as well. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So how do we love others and how do we imitate God? We always speak the truth. We always speak the truth. To love someone who says they are gay, is to speak truth to them as lovingly as possible, as lovingly and patiently as you can. And their primary sin, their main sin, is not homosexuality. Rosaria Butterfield, who was gay and then was saved and brought out of that, she very clearly and powerfully showed in a book that she wrote that a homosexual's greatest sin is unbelief. It's like all of us before Christ. Before we come to Christ, we all have the sin of unbelief. So when it comes to who should and who should not be ordained as an elder, for a pastor or a person to be gay, to embrace the gay lifestyle or claim that title, is to reject God. If you're using your office to celebrate the gay lifestyle, you are permanently disqualified. And you should be publicly rebuked. No elder is perfect, but they should be above scandalous reproach. And those who persist should be rebuked.
Paul reminds Timothy right after that, in verse 21, of the seriousness of the issue of church discipline and the treatment of elders and discipline. It's such a weighty thing. Listen to his words. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, doing nothing from partiality. Is there any more fearful task that is required of a body, a court, if you will, in the church, than to administer justice to an elder? Paul seems to think that there's nothing more serious in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. They should do this work without partiality, without prejudice. When disciplining or treating the sin of an elder, they should be disciplined like everyone else. They should be rebuked like everyone else. It applies to all the work in the church. There's no partiality or favoritism. We do nothing because they're from here, not from here. They're family, they're not family. They're rich or they're poor. Their skin color is lighter or darker. When it comes to anything our church does and any church of Christ does, it's done with no partiality at all. We try to apply the scriptures to the situation in an attitude of love. So especially when disciplining elders, there's no partiality shown, no favoritism. This isn't an opinion. Paul charges Timothy to do this in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. What a fearful thing. It does remind us of the text that we read when Jesus said, I am right there with you when you do these, when you bind or loose on earth. I'm right there with you. And whatever you agree about and ask for, it will be done by my Father in heaven. It's make me, it should make all of us shudder when we think of the heavy responsibility we have to apply this particular principle to elders or anyone who's being disciplined or corrected. No partiality and doing it with love before God. No partiality, of course, because we're all in the same boat. Before the cross of Jesus Christ, the ground is completely level. No one's having to climb farther than anyone else. We all come to Jesus Sinners in need of a Savior. We all come to Jesus completely broken and lost, dead in our sins. We all come to salvation the same way. God redeems you and calls you by name, calls you His own. We're saved by grace. And we're charged to remember this in the presence of God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels. When we are treating elders, correcting or disciplining elders, we need to do it correctly and show no partiality. One of the things that was mentioned at General Assembly a number of times is we need to be careful what we do here with this issue of homosexual pastors because the world is watching. What did Paul just say? It doesn't matter if the world is watching. Who's watching? The Father, the Son, and the elect angels are watching what you do. It's much more serious than just the world seeing what we do. So when we correct elders, we do it well. 
We do it biblically and we do it with love. Using the principles found in Matthew chapter 18. We also see great love in the selection of elders and great seriousness in the selection of elders. These things are also being observed by the Father and the Son and the elect angels. And you also play a part in that when you select your elders. This is the last point, the selection of elders. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That phrase just means the ordination of elders, the ordination of officers. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. As I said, laying on of hands is a phrase that simply means ordination. When an elder was ordained, the other elders in the church would put their hands on him and commission him and pray for him. Paul reminds Timothy of the day that he was ordained, when the elders laid their hands upon him. This ordination is supposed to inspire him to his duty and inspire fear as well, a fear of God, because it is a heavy calling. It's his commissioning. And Paul says, do not be hasty in ordaining men for service. They should be tested. If you're hasty, you are failing in your responsibility. They may have some hidden moral failure. That's why he says the sins of some are conspicuous, but the others appear later. So don't be hasty. Take your time. Because some moral failure that would disqualify them from service may appear later. So slow down. Don't be hasty. Our denomination, I believe, follows this counsel very well. People who desire ordination are put under a time of trial and testing, as pastors anyway, for one, maybe two years even. In this time of care and testing, when that's complete, and only when that's complete, are they ordained for ministry. It's a time of testing, it's a time of study, it's a time of preparation. But once they have passed these tests, if there is no scandal, no moral failure found in them that would scandalize the church, they're ordained, if they're found blameless. Of course, someone who does have an Unfortunately, this isn't as common to have someone who's under care, and that's the phrase that's used in the PCA for people who are being ordained. Someone who's under care, it's very uncommon, I haven't seen it, that they would not proceed all the way to ordination. Why is that? It's because it's really hard to get inside someone's personal life. It's hard to discern what's in their heart. That's why we're not to be hasty. We're to slow down. And the thing that probably would prevent most young men from becoming ordained today is pornography. The seminary I went to, the very first day of class, the instructor said, if you are addicted to pornography, you need to fix that before you continue in these studies. Of course, it's Christ who fixes it, but his point was clear. Don't continue studying And looking at pornography, I believe it's the greatest 
the greatest sin that keeps men from being qualified. And yet many of them are ordained despite this. You're either qualified or unqualified. It's a binary thing. It's a one or a zero. It's not personal. But after you have, as a pastor, as an elder, after you've been caught in an outrageous sin, or you've confessed an outrageous sin, generally you are unqualified for further ministry. Notice that Paul also says that good works are also conspicuous. Not only will evil deeds show themselves over time, but good works are also conspicuous. In other words, you'll know a good elder candidate. Clearly, you'll see his works, and you'll know that someone is qualified as an elder in general when you lay your hands on them, partially because they're already doing the work of an elder. Their good works are evident to all. They're a spiritual encouragement. They're already teaching the flock. They're faithful to serve and pray for the flock. And this is before their elders. Their good works are proceeding ahead of them. But I think the principle is the same. We're not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. This is a good thing. Because either their sin or their good works are going to show themselves. So those are the four points. Let me summarize quickly. Elders should receive honor from the heart for their labors on your behalf. Number two, they should receive compensation if they're full-time elders. Three, charges against elders should not be listened to without due process. Matthew 18, they shouldn't even be admitted. Number four, elders found guilty of scandalous sin should be publicly rebuked and removed permanently. Number five, the time to choose, take the time to choose elders wisely. Take the time to do it well. And I'm just going to conclude with this point. It is a heavy, heavy burden. And yet it is something that should be done with great joy. And I must say, speaking for myself, it is often with great joy that I serve you. I love the burden of keeping watch over your souls as much as I can as your pastor. I know Jerry is probably of the same mind, but we also know that we will have to give account because the Father, the Son, and the elect angels are watching our work. So I would ask that you pray for your elders. Pray for us. Those who attempt to do their duty well will be under great pressure and attack. Without the grace of Jesus and the prayers of the saints, I don't think it would be possible. We see in verse 23 that Timothy was a sick person. He was sick. Paul says, drink some wine. Your stomach is so messed up. Don't just drink water. The water was probably terrible. The fermentation of the wine probably made it more healthy. But he had physical ailments. That's the point. We know that Paul may have had a physical thorn. He may have had a physical ailment that was referred to as his thorn that God refused to take away. And if you remember when Satan attacked Job, one of the ways he attacked Job was physically This is a real battle. 
high stakes. So pray for your ministers. Many of you probably know, and this is just a short side note, for 25 years in the Air Force, I was perfectly healthy, had no real problems at all, nothing. Perfect physicals. In the first two years of ministry, God just crushed my body. I had so many strange ailments. It's embarrassing to talk about most of them, but some strange ailments. God allowed these things to happen to humble my heart, to give me a more intense understanding of the nature of suffering, the gravity of the calling, the inadequacy of my heart to preach the word of God apart from his spirit, the awareness of my own sin. And it was all to his glory, and I thank him for it. And were it not for the prayers of many of you, I think I would have failed to continue. So pray for your elders, pray for Jerry, pray for me as God sanctifies us that we would be free to minister as those who fear not man but fear only God who are slaves to God and not to the opinions of man and acknowledging that all things are in his hands. So pray for us. We also need to remember, I believe, that there is one shepherd who never needed to be prayed for, never needed to be corrected, never needed to be um, rebuked in any way. He suffered more than I have ever suffered, or Jerry has ever suffered, in more ways than any elder today has ever suffered. He's perfect and he's courageous. He's faithful and he's holy. He cares for his flock even today. He's our good shepherd, and he is still our good shepherd. When you think of our good shepherd, you should always remember that he still says, Come to me, all you who are weak and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what a shepherd does. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. This is his call to those of his own flock whom he shepherds today. And yet it's also his call to those who do not know him today. He calls you to come to him. Repent of your sin and come to your good shepherd. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful and compassionate Father, we thank you that you have given us a good shepherd. And we thank you that you have also appointed under shepherds over us in this church. We pray that we would have a right understanding of caring for elders, correcting elders, providing for elders, selecting elders. We know that you are watching. Your son is watching. The elect angels are watching. The the task is so serious. Often the success or failure from a worldly perspective of your church hinges upon the men who lead it. So we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us favor, that you would honor and glorify your own name, give us great wisdom, that each one of us would come personally to our own good shepherd in humility and love, that that love would grow more and more every day in Jesus' name.